Hi, welcome to Death and Desserts, where we discuss the dark, disturbing, and beautiful elements of death whilst eating dessert. I'm Sana. Zaria is taking a much-needed break today. I am here today to interview my good friend Beth, who is a palliative care nurse. And today we are eating cannoli from DiMaggio's in Canton. If you'd like to see what we are eating, check out our Instagram at Death and Desserts Podcast, where we will also be tagging the restaurant. So, hi Beth. Hi. How are you liking that cannoli? It's good. Yeah, that I love cannolo. it. <laughs> cannolo, yeah. Thank you for educating me on that. I did not know, listeners, that cannoli is the plural word for the dessert, and one cannolo. tube is a cannolo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that either until recently. <laughs> yeah, so... Thanks for that little it's tidbit. Really, yes, thank you for dessert. I loved it. I, this is actually the first time I've had cannoli in a very long time. Like, I haven't had it since I was a child, so I did not recall what... It's so good. Yeah. It's, it's intense. The cream filling is mm-hmm. very rich. I love the filling. I could just eat it by itself. <laughs> <laughs> Surprisingly, I really like the crust. I don't usually go for, like, hard crusts, but mm-hmm. I do. I like it a lot. So... If you guys need cannoli, go to DiMaggio's. They also have chocolate cannoli. Mm. Yeah, fancy. So how about we just dive into the questions? Okay. Tell me, what is palliative care? So palliative care essentially just means to, like, palliate or, you know, make someone comfortable. And the way we use it nowadays, because it is actually a specialty, it's a newer specialty, actually, It's used in conjunction with, you know, your standard care, your regular curative care for any disease. And then we also try to help with the symptoms just to make someone more comfortable in the event that their regular treatment isn't already doing that. And then I think there's a question about hospice, so I'll get into that later. But yeah, it's just, it's about, you know, making symptoms comfortable. Okay. Okay. So then it's in home or hospital? Yeah, palliative care can be anywhere. and I mean, you don't have to have a specialist to do palliative care, but it is helpful. So it can be in home, it can be in nursing homes, assisted living, the hospital, whatever. Because it can be for something acute that's going on, something that's brand new and may go away. Or it could be for something that's happening within the course of a disease okay. over, the, over the long term. Okay, So, yeah, here's the question you were talking about. What is the difference between hospice and palliative care? And I need to know this because I often, when you first got out of nursing school, I kept calling you a hospice nurse. And you're like, that's not what I do. (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember that. But I do work for hospice as well. I do some PR and work for them because it's easy to cross over. So we say that all of hospice is palliative care because it is just comfort care. But hospice is not palliative care in and of itself. So like I said, palliative care goes along with the normal course of treatment, standard of care. You're still trying to be curative or prevent a disease from getting worse. You're actively doing that. Whereas hospice, you know, you've accepted that your disease is, you know, it's going to only progress and get worse and we can't make it better other than to make the symptoms better. And so you are in hospice's purely end of life care. We're just trying to make you comfortable and allow you to do whatever goals are important to you so if that's you know being able to eat or like just spending time with your family and then the rest of it just falls where it may okay 
Okay. Now I'm glad that I know the difference. <laughs> I've been so curious. How often do people get released from palliative care? Because it sounds like since you're still doing curative that it is possible for people to just be okay again. Yes. So there's a few different scenarios. I mean, I could get someone that say does have cancer and maybe they need help with like pain management or nausea or anxiety, whatever, and we'll treat those symptoms and their cancer might get cured and they go on like I'll never see them again or I may see them years later for something totally unrelated. Or there are people who have a long disease course like heart failure or COPD and maybe they're having trouble with symptoms and we help them find a routine or a medication that helps with symptoms and then they can be released and go back to their primary care provider because I, I work with all of the primary care providers and all of the specialists. It's not like they just get turned over to me. But we can work on making their symptoms better and then they go back to their regular doctor and again I don't see them for a while. Okay. Um, so I, I don't have an exact number. I think I saw a statistic from the hospice standpoint like one in five patients might get discharged from hospice alive. Um, but, you know, with palliative care, it's happening much more frequently because, you know, they're not, not everyone is terminal on palliative care. Right. Okay. Is dealing with family members, who is usually making the decisions for your patients? Is it usually family members or is it the patients themselves because they're still all there? It depends. It can be a combination of all of those things. And I like to say that we make decisions together because some patients want you to make decisions for them and I'm like whoa I can't, <laughs> uh, can't do that <laughs> I can give you my opinion my medical professional opinion but can't do that so if the patient is aware and cognizant enough to make decisions even if they're not good ones they're a vital part of that process because making palliative decisions depends on what your personal goals are but oftentimes we do have to include family or they just want them to be involved because they need support in making a decision. I will say that I have seen family members, you know, look at their, like, we're talking about something, you know, do you want to do this treatment or this treatment? And a family will say, oh, it's all up to you. And they really are looking for an acknowledgement of support from their family member saying it's okay, especially if they're trying to decide about hospice. They're mm. really looking for a family member to say it's okay. Is there any kind of training in nursing school for that or is it something you learn afterward to deal with the family and sort of like bedside manner and or how to deal with the families specifically or just in doing palliative care yeah well like if you're making like an unpopular decision with the family I feel like and maybe I don't remember very well we had a very small portion in nursing school and even in nurse practitioner school that was focused on like end of life care or palliation. So it was very small, but I find that some like the newer doctors and nurses that are coming out that they're much more open to it and they seem to know more about it. So I don't know if the curriculum has changed over the years. Maybe somebody could weigh in on that from the listener's <laughs> side, but there is training after you're a professional. Yeah. So yeah, for palliative care, you have to have a thousand hours of training in palliative care before you can become certified. I'm not sure what it is on the hospice end. It's probably the same because it's usually the same agencies that are giving you those accreditations. So for like just nursing, and they do it for providers too, but there's something called LNEC, which is E-L-N-E-C, which is the end of life. I think it's Nursing Education Consortium is the last bit. Okay. And that is where you get a huge bulk of training about how to talk to families, how to speak to them in a way that's not going to 
trigger them to, you know, not want to interact with you or be upset, which that can't always be avoided. People get angry, but (laughs) there are ways to go about it so that it's not as uncomfortable as it has to be. Well, I'm glad they teach you how to do that. (laughs) (laughs) And then there's, I'm a member of the Hospice and Palliative Nurses Association, which also, again, trains nurses and providers uh, about end-of-life care. So you can get, like, you can be personally accredited or certified in palliative care and hospice, or your organization can be certified in that care. So how much of your current workload right now is for end-of-life folks? Oh gosh, I mean that. Could, is that too complicated a question? <laughs> yeah, that could vary from that could vary from day to day. I mean, even on what I'm seeing in the hospital, I had a very heavy week last week with people that were just, I mean, just dying. Just they really needed to be on hospice, and those conversations happen so so too late, way too late. Um, I am a real strong advocate for getting my palliative patients on hospice as soon as possible because there's more services, and they also transition better than patients who were never on palliative care Mm. so getting them on palliative care sooner even if I see somebody one time and then I don't see them again for a couple of years it's still easier because they've given thought to their end-of-life choices or just not necessarily end-of-life but about you know what their comfort means to them what their goals are with their with their health care and what's more important to them in their life that makes sense yeah gotta get them thinking What are some common misconceptions about palliative care, besides the fact that everyone thinks it's hospice? Well, that's the first one. (laughs) I do often feel like I'm the grim reaper. (laughs) Oh, no. Um, And because people associate palliative care with hospice, because they're similar, people think that we euthanize people. I don't... No way. Yes, they, they really think that we just give medications to people until they die, and... I think where that comes in from is that people wait too long to get on hospice. And so it's, well, yes, they're put on hospice so that they can die comfortably. And so they think when palliative care comes in, oh, that's what you're going to do. Well, sometimes, yeah, that happens because you've had the conversation way too late and we're, we're past the point of no return. Mm. But yeah, I'll come in and people are terrified of morphine. Terrified. But it's a cheap drug and it works well for pain and shortness of breath. And so... People get really scared of that. They're like, oh, you're going to give me morphine until I die. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to force feed you morphine. This is here as a tool in your toolbox with all the other things that I give you. And palliative care is not just medication management. Like, I don't just go in and throw medicines at people. Um, There may be other treatments that we can do. Uh, Some of that may depend on, you know, if the patient can afford it because it may not be covered by insurance Mm. but then we can always have therapy come in and work with patients on their symptoms i'm always astounded at copd patients that have never been told to use a fan and they've never had occupational training occupational therapy for you know energy conservation so that they don't get short of breath i didn't even know that was a thing yeah so i mean we do other things like we order treatments we we order other therapies, other specialists, equipment that will help with symptoms so that we don't have to use medications. Yeah, I think those are the big ones that, you know, we're just going to euthanize people and we are hospice. Pretty huh. much, yeah. That's... And that we, they think that we take over all of their care and take away all of their medications. Oh, <laughs> and and that is not at all. No. But <laughs> you're still trying to be curative, so of course you're... Yeah. Oh, goodness. 
So what is the most rewarding part of your job? I love my patients. They're, it's, kind, it's actually kind of a selfish job <laughs> because <laughs> my patients are so sweet. Even the people that are seemingly quite gruff have been some of my best patients because once you can get past what is frustrating them, they, they're just so nice. They just say the sweetest things and tell you the nicest stories and they're Aww. just very welcoming and, and like I'll come into their house and there's, you know, times where I've like forgotten to knock and they're like, oh, it's okay. Your family just come on. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. <laughs> I hope you don't do that to everyone that comes up to your door. Well, I mean, you literally make them feel better. So I could see how people right. would want to <laughs> yeah. make you part of the family. Yeah. Um, my my patients are the most rewarding. And it's nice when, you know, they don't have to go on hospice. But if they do, it's still okay. You know, that's still a rewarding part because they still got what they wanted. Did this job help in any way to prepare you for your sister's death, even though her death was very sudden? Yes, it did. So something I haven't talked about yet, like just with palliative care in general is, um, you know, she had her five wishes done, which is a form that is good. And I think it's 42 states and it's a little blue booklet. And the five wishes are who you want to be your decision maker, questions about life support, comfort care is the third one. Then there's like uh, things I want my friends and family to know. And then things I want after my death. So it's very comprehensive from like the start. I have of, never heard of this. So. From the start of your palliative care to the end of it. So it's, you know, when you go to the hospital and they ask you, do you have a living will or an advanced directive? That's what that is. That's one okay. of them. Usually states have their own living will forms. I like the five wishes because it's not written in what I like to call legalese. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I just feel like it's easier to read. But I know Amy had hers done, but she hadn't had it notarized. But even though she didn't, we had already had those discussions, even though they were maybe light, because I, I don't recall that she was necessarily making me her decision maker. I couldn't, mm. I couldn't remember if she wanted it to be me or someone else. But, you know, I knew that her views sort of aligned with mine, even if they didn't. That was, you know, that would have been okay. I still would have made decisions. What made it hard about making decisions for her, it, you know, was her son. Mm. And because I particularly remember getting called by one of the surgeons they they didn't want to work on her her aorta which had been damaged until her the bleeding on her brain went down because there was a risk for her to be paralyzed and i was like okay so would amy be okay with this like if she could just you know still interact with her son if she was wheelchair bound would it really matter in the long run if she was living so that was helpful because i could i could think about what she would want so it did help and then it helped you know, when we got the call within less than 24 hours that things were not going well from the surgeons and it was getting dire, you know, I was able to talk to my mom about, okay, well, these are the decisions that I feel like we need to make because I'm not sure that the doctor is saying them, they're hinting at it, but this is what we really need to make and we really need to make it very quickly. And I was trying to allow her to make the decision if she wanted to because, you know, I had another sister that also died in a car accident over 20 years ago, so this was very difficult on her. But yeah, it, it did help because we had already had those discussions, and I knew looking at the treatments that they were doing, it may have been different because I do work in a hospital, 
and I knew the medications that they were giving her and, you know, the amounts of medications that they were giving her and how frequently were um, very high and it wasn't working, so it was unlikely mm. to get any better. So, short answer, yes. <laughs> short answer, yes. Yeah. I'm glad it was helpful. Everyone should, again, if you don't fill any forms out, that doesn't matter necessarily, but please talk to your family members about what your wishes are and you should look at the rules in your state about who will be your default decision maker if you don't make a living will or a healthcare power of attorney because I've had lots of patients that you know they were still technically married and so I had to ask this person that they're separated from you know Oh gosh. Yeah, that happens a lot actually. Ooh. They may not separate for monetary reasons is usually what happens. So you know, it is really good to go ahead and do your living wills and write this stuff down. I'm sure there's something that you've not thought of. I've edited mine twice. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you can change it at any time. You know, it, it doesn't, it's not written in stone. So when you did your death plan or end of life plan, was it because of your work or you just thought of it and you were like, yeah, it's a good idea to be prepared or? Um, both. I mean, I knew that I should have one done, but then being in palliative care and being a palliative care provider, I'm like, I should probably have mine done because that's just a good example to yeah, set right? for people. And, <laughs> and the... you can give people advice on how to do it. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm familiar with the with the book, you know, so I know the questions that are in it. Oh, yeah, and certainly after my cancer diagnosis, even though yeah. it was a curable stage of cancer and that, that I have a huge risk of recurrence, even with the treatment that I did do and am doing, I was like, crap, I need to write this down because this could happen. This is mm. serious. Need to do it right now. And it's the one thing that I can stress for people in planning because... Besides the symptom management, this is the other huge part of palliative care is planning. It is so much easier to plan when you are feeling better. You may not consider yourself totally healthy, but when you're in a stable state and you're, it's not an emergency. Because trying to make a decision in an emergency is just the worst possible way to do it. And then someone's always going to question whether they did the right thing. Word. I still don't have an end of life plan or a death plan. And I keep thinking about how it needs to get done. <laughs> Uh, doing this podcast is really... I'll bring you a five wishes. Yes, please do. <laughs> like, I will totally fill that out because I'm like, I, I need to do this. Like, this is homework I need to get done. <laughs> so when we say living will, that's the advanced directive, the, f the five wishes. But also go ahead and make your will because if you have kids, you need to write down who they go to, who you want them to go to. Otherwise, they may not end up where you want them to, you know? Right. I've had a couple people, like, you know mentioned that they had never thought about that and I'm like yeah, you need to think about that <laughs> yeah when we first had Ed my sister didn't have any children and my parents were very healthy and now Ed is 15 years old and he has a little brother and it's like well what do we do now like everybody has too many children <laughs> or too many people to take care of you could send them to me so yeah I'm I totally could. And I know that Chris would definitely keep Ed, you know, going to shows and stuff like that. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah. He's, he says he's anti-child, but he's, it's not that bad. <laughs> and also, Ed's not a child. The monster, definitely a little small right now. But you don't have to be the one to answer this, but you know, and I don't. What is the difference between a living will and a will? 
So a living will, people frequently confuse this when I ask them in the hospital because they'll start talking about their property and I'm like, I really don't care about that and it's none of my business <laughs> what you do with your stuff. A living will specifically applies to what kind of healthcare treatments you are okay with if you are alive but you are unable to make your decisions for yourself because you incapacitated in some way. Okay. Whether, whether it's like temporary or if it's some kind of permanent brain injury. And then a will is just, you know, like how to deal with your bank accounts and your stuff and okay. your children and pets. So the living will is just about your health care. And it just encompasses a small part of it because you there are still other forms, you know, there in North Carolina we have a what's called a most form. In other states it's called a pulsed and it's a much shorter version of like really quick and dirty, like what kinds of treatments are you okay with? Like, do I wanna be resuscitated? Do I want to go to the hospital for any reason? You know, am I okay getting IV fluids, antibiotics, or tube feedings? And for how long? So those are just some other things that you can do in part of your planning. And those work really well for people that are, like, older, you know, mm. and may have a more serious condition or, make, you know, closer to end of life. Of course, everyone's, I think, pretty familiar with DNR or... Do, like, not do not resuscitate or in some states it's a do not attempt to resuscitate order hmm. <laughs> right don't even try yeah don't, don't, don't attempt to, <laughs> like you can attempt but just make sure you're not successful who <laughs> <laughs> would do that that's what they call a slow code <laughs> that's terrible <laughs> okay now what <laughs> a, a slow code it's a very bad healthcare joke I may be making myself look bad here but Someone that really shouldn't be, like, in our medical opinion, we, you know, it's going to be futile to Mm. try and resuscitate somebody and probably just cause more damage. But the family's not willing to accept that. And so some, it's a joke. I want to make that very clear. It's a joke that you're just going to leisurely go about that code. You can't can't do that, but, you know. Right. You actually do try. Yeah, yeah, you do. (laughs) But you're like, guys, slow code, guys. But, um, you know, hopefully you're, you know, when that happens, you're, you've already had those conversations with the family and you're like hoping that when it happens, they come around at the last second and say, no, please don't, which does happen. I have no idea what I want in any of those regards. Is there something that's hanging you up? No. I'm just very bad at making decisions. The more options, the harder it gets. <laughs> I have a booklet for that. It's called Hard Choices for Loving People. It's by Henry Dunn, I think is his name. And it breaks down like CPR, artificial nutrition and hydration, and um, like the success rates of those treatments. Is all this literature like the, the five wishes and the... The workbook you just mentioned, are they free? Where can you get them if you don't know a palliative care nurse? So you can get them from your doctor. The Hank Dunn book, Hard Choices for Loving People, you can get online. And I'm pretty sure that the Five Wishes, they have their own website. But Aging with Dignity is what I was trying to think of. Oh, okay. They have them, so you can get them there. Now, like, the DNRs and the most forms, you're going to have to get those from your your provider because they have to be signed by a medical provider, mm. whereas the five wishes is something that just has to be notarized. Okay. Well, I know a notary. 
you have resources now. I do. That's exciting. And I get to share how you can get these resources with everyone else. Most people my age, our age, like I'm slightly older than you, (laughs) but folks, you know, in our generation, I don't think a lot of us know that there's all this stuff out there to think about and to Mm -hmm. do and where would you even start? And well, now we have starts. Like you can go online and and get these things. And oftentimes I, and when I'm with families and that, you know, their elderly parent is trying to make a decision, I'm like, hey, do you want one too? Because, you know, you're only 20 years down the line. Right. (laughs) (laughs) When you mentioned that, I was like, oh, I need one for my parents too. (laughs) Because <laughs> I can guarantee that they haven't done it. Now you can start those discussions. Yeah. I mean, they don't want to have those discussions, but Nobody, we all have to have these discussions. Nobody wants to have them. Yeah. yeah, well, Zaria and I are trying very hard to become part of the death positivity movement. And part of that is taking stigma out of the hard conversations Mm -hmm. and stuff like that and encouraging the hard conversations so that's another reason we're doing this is to spur people into having those conversations and letting them know that there are resources for them and templates to have these conversations with Mm -hmm. i mean i've literally done consults in the hospital where people just wanted information on like a five wishes and our hospital specifically doesn't have a well we did just hire a social worker but we didn't for a very long time but oftentimes it's just a social worker that will just bring you the information so i mean you can ask your local provider specialist your primary care whoever if they have those resources or somebody that can go through it with you yeah i feel like it would be helpful to have somebody go through it with you instead of somebody just like toss it at you in the hallway and be like there you go (laughs) or downloading it off the internet maybe there's like a tutorial on youtube or something Hell, there probably is. Oh, maybe. I don't know. (laughs) Alrighty. I totally forgot to do death trivia. Oh, since we're talking about end-of-life care, would you want something like about like a symptom at the end of life? Like what kind of symptoms? So, I mean, everyone's, you know, like familiar with a death rattle and there's actually a timeline. Okay, no, you need to (laughs) describe death rattles because somebody else, oh, it was the thanatologist. Cole and Perry talking about death rattles on ologies mm-hmm. and it was not what I thought at all so please describe okay. death rattles to us so a death rattle can happen in anyone that's actively dying what we, well, in the stage that we say actively dying but I you know I mostly see it in people that have some sort of like heart or respiratory disease um, and it's just an accumulation of secretions so they're they're not able to manage their own secretions like you know you normally swallow your own saliva and all of that mm-hmm. um, and they can't do that so we have to kind of dry it up for them and it will sound very gurgly very rattly it's very loud a lot of times and it's very distressful for family members most of the time it's not actually distressful for the patient so a lot of times that symptom that we're treating is because of the family not because of the patient but we also don't want people to feel like they are drowning because they can't tell us how they feel when they're actively dying usually because that is probably the second biggest concern that people have surrounding dying is they don't want to feel like they're drowning interesting the first one is pain right i mean that makes sense because Drowning is very panic inducing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, nobody wants to feel that when they're dying, if they have the choice. (laughs) 
Okay, now I'm curious. What other symptoms you got? (laughs) So, you know, of course, people can experience pain at the end of life if they have never had pain, and some people don't ever have that. I mean, it's just normal stuff like anxiety, shortness of breath, I should have said, rather than actual, like, a death rattle. Um, Mm. Because you can actually, that's different. The noise is what we refer to as a death rattle, but you can actually have shortness of breath that's associated with it. Modeling is a big one. Um, People will have cool extremities, but modeling specifically is where blood is cooling in, like maybe your backside or your feet or hands from where you've been in a position for one or two hours. You know, we try to turn people often, but the blood just pools because your body's not circulating it as well as Mm. it should. And there is a phenomenon that I cannot remember the name of right now, and hospice nurses are going to come after me, but it is a, it looks like a deep tissue injury or a bruise, and it ju- it happens on your on your bottom, and it looks like a big butterfly. And I wish I could remember the name of it. But, okay, we um, got to Google that. <laughs> I'm just yeah, because that actually happens within a very specific time frame before death. Um, really? Yeah. Oh, it's called a Kennedy ulcer. A Kennedy ulcer. Yeah, I guess some people call it a death sore. I've never heard of that. Um, and when does it happen? So I think it's within like the last 24 hours of death, which is usually also when your death rattle is going to occur, but not always because I have heard people have that for days. Not everything is hard and fast right. <laughs> in palliative care. And they, yeah, they don't know what causes the Kennedy ulcer. So when you see that, when you're yeah, turning somebody over, yeah. you're like, okay, this is it. Yeah. Okay. Because I've always been curious how people know when it's coming. And I guess that's... Yeah, I, if there's symptoms to look for, then you can, like, start calling everybody and be like, hey, mm-hmm. it's time. Yeah, yeah. And you're, I mean, people may start breathing very rapidly, um, which is why we use morphine to sort of slow that down and calm that down. And in, in terms of vital signs, you might see low blood pressure, high heart rate, low oxygen. I mean, if you're able to monitor those things mm. and if you are wanting to monitor those things. Because right. You know, there's not often a point if someone's just being made comfortable. Well, this has been fascinating. (laughs) Cool. I didn't know I was going to be able to give you so much info. (laughs) I'm delighted at all the info that you've given me. Yeah, we did an interview with a death doula, and she said how closely she worked with hospice and stuff like that. And I was like, I know a hospice. No, 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 she's not a hospice nurse. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, funnily enough, I've ever never actually been a hospice nurse (laughs) (laughs) but you've had to there's a lot of overlap yeah and but i knew i knew this was going to be a great interview i'm on call right now (laughs) i totally believe that (laughs) oh the life of nurses on call man that sucks (laughs) at least i don't have to go anywhere (laughs) oh really like they just call you and you just answer it over the phone yeah i just give orders over the phone oh nice I used to make rounds at our homestead where mm. we had inpatients, but since that was taken away or stopped, whatever, I don't know what to call it. We don't have it anymore. <laughs> um, we don't have to go do that. Well, thank you so much for this interview. I've learned so much, and that's always my favorite part of this podcast is learning stuff. And I hope you enjoyed your canolo. I did. Thank <laughs> I, you I for having mine. me. So what did you think of my winging it for a solo interview, Zarya? I think that you did an amazing job, and I really love that the whole 
interview with you and Beth. We really appreciate her and her work for sure. And I was really fascinated about the cannoli thing. I didn't know about that. <laughs> right. So I'm getting educated even when I'm apart from you, which was hard for us both, but I think I'll survive. And We, we really will... missed you. <laughs> I missed you too. It felt very weird. So with that weirdness, while I was all by my lonesome not eating cannoli with you, although you did bring me cannoli, porch cannoli, it was amazing. <laughs> um, we have some death news. Oh, excellent. So, recently, this week, near us in South Asheville, a cemetery was added to the National Register of Historic Places, and they um, unveiled a historic plaque for the St. John A. Baptist Church, and this cemetery was a burial ground for those enslaved by William and Sarah McDowell in the 1800s, so this is a a historic African-American cemetery. And it said that in the soil studies that they estimated that more than 3,000 people were buried oh my at the God. cemetery from the 1800s to 1943. So it had to have been also maybe descendants of those? Very likely. Probably. And But here's the really sad part, and I think the reason why they shed so much light on this becoming a historical thing was that even though there are more than 3,000 bodies in that cemetery, only 93 of those spots are marked with gravestones. Only Only 93. Oh my gosh. So their history wasn't recognized. They had no voice. Wow. Well, I'm glad it's, I guess, being recognized now. I mean, sort of. That's intense. It is intense. It is the only cemetery on the National Register in Buncombe County. Really? Mm-hmm. Not even Riverside? Apparently not. Wow. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm a little astounded that there were so many people and only 93 markers. Oh, no. It's... I mean, I understand. Yeah. Like, I know, but then you don't know, you know? I do know. <laughs> I do know exactly what you're saying. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> All right. So we'll be linking you to the story, and I will also be putting up links that Beth mentioned, and if I can pass out the Five Wishes booklets and whatnot for everyone, I'll do that. Announcements. The next listener's episode. This is going to take some thinking, especially those of you that are huge movie buffs, but um, what is your favorite death scene in a movie or TV show? I actually already know mine. It was kind of surprisingly easy, so I will share that with our next listeners episode. But yeah, that's that's what we're going with. And our next listeners episode will be publishing on October 1st because it's the first Saturday of every month. So if you want to send us some of your submissions, get that to us soon. Yes, please. All art is done by Zarya. I didn't do a lot of research this time because it was all Beth just dropping the learning. And our theme song is Kevin McLeod. And where can folks find us, Zarya? As always, you can find us at Instagram at Death and Desserts Podcast, Twitter at Death underscore Desserts, TikTok at Death and Desserts, and Facebook at Death and Desserts Podcast. All our links, including our website, are available on our Instagram bio. Join us in two weeks for Mexican Death Gods, the Aztec, and the Mayans, and anything else we can find. I'm so excited for that one. Me too. And we gotta find a good dessert for that. Oh, goodness. I'm pretty sure it's gonna be tres leches cake. (laughs) But you never know. And remember, 
Life is short. Have dessert.